Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by the Low Residency MFA program at the University of California, Riverside, Palm Desert. What do Rob Roberge, Emily Rapp, Gina Frangelo, Todd Goldberg, David L. Ulin, and Elizabeth Crane have in common? Other than being guests on this program, they are part of the faculty of the hottest MFA program in the country, offering degrees in fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and screenwriting. The Low Residency MFA at UCR Palm Desert focuses on students becoming professional writers actually selling their books and movies and TV shows, not just talking about it. More than just an MFA, the Low Residency MFA at UC Riverside is an entry point into a life in the arts. Plus, and this is important, the two 10-day residencies are held at a resort and spa in Palm Desert, California, which isn't a bad way to attend graduate school. For more information, visit palmdesertmfa.ucr.edu or email palmdesertmfa at ucr. This is a low-residency MFA program in Palm Desert, California. Go and study there and write something. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a podcast that I made for you. This is something you can listen to while in the fetal position. How's it going? What's happening? What is your worldview? Can you detect it? Are you feeling good about things? Are you worried uh, about the future? Is nihilism creeping in? My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I'm very excited about today's uh, episode. Eileen Miles is my guest. I'm very excited about that. Uh, thrilled to have had the chance to meet her and to talk with her. And, uh, you know, she was here at my house just the other day in my garage. She made time in her very busy schedule to uh, stop by and do the program. So, uh, Eileen has not one but two books out right now from Echo. The first is a collection of her poetry written between the years 1975 and 2014. It is called I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems. That's available now. Uh, and then Echo has also reissued Chelsea Girls, a novel which was uh, originally published in 1994, I believe, and has become over the years a kind of cult classic, very stylistically influential uh, autobiographical novel, now available in a beautiful new edition from Echo. So 
Uh, Eileen Miles and I in conversation in just a moment. It's sort of a funny story uh, how all of this went down. Uh, as many of you know who follow me on Twitter, my computer died recently. Uh, I had a MacBook Pro. My computer died. <laughs> it's a real loss. Uh, it was almost five years old, and uh, it, it is the computer that I have used to record every single episode of this program up until last week. And uh, what happened is that the computer expired approximately 10 minutes before Eileen arrived at my house. And it was a, it was a stressful situation. Like Eileen was, uh, you know, she texted me from the road. I'm in the car. I just landed. I'm on my way. I'll be there in 20. Uh, and then, you know, I'm getting set up. I'm racing to do prep as I often do. And then, uh, my computer dies. It was, it was very slow. It had been slow for a while. And, uh, and then on this particular day at this particular time, I couldn't get the cursor to move. And so I wound up doing a, a like a, I forced it to, to shut down by holding the power button. You know how you do that? You just hold the power button as like a method of last resort. And so I did that and it turned off and then I turned it back on. And when I did that, I could, you know, I couldn't even log in. Everything was frozen. It died. And meanwhile, Eileen uh, is like, I'll be there in five minutes. Almost there. So I'm starting to panic a little bit. I really want this to go well. And uh, I run inside and my wife is uh, working on her computer. And I was in such a panic that I literally just ripped the computer out of her hands. <laughs> without even asking. I'm, I'm just like, I'm sorry, Eileen's here. I need this. I'll bring it right back in an hour and a half. So I grab the computer. I turn around. I run back out to the garage and I quickly get everything set up. And then it, just as I finish, Eileen arrives and, uh, you know, I'm trying to calm myself. And, uh, you know, she was great. Very fun to talk with. Could not have been nicer calming I think I settled down I don't know if you can hear it in my voice maybe there were like uh, tinges of panic in my voice but uh, we had a good talk and I'm very excited to share this episode with you and I figure uh, that we should get started today with uh, Eileen Miles herself I asked her when she got here if she would mind reading a poem from her new collection and uh, she obliged and I felt like this would be the perfect way to get things rolling so here, without any further ado, is Eileen Miles reading a poem from her new collection called I Must Be Living Twice. This is called Holes. Once when I passed East 4th Street off 1st Avenue, I think it was in early fall and I had a small hole in the shoulder of my white shirt and another on the back. I looked just beautiful. It was a whole moment in the 70s when it was beautiful to have holes in your shirts and sweaters. By now it was 1981, but I carried that 70s style around like a torch. There was a whole way of feeling about yourself that was more European than American, unless it was American around 1910, when it was beautiful to be a strong, starving immigrant who believed so much in herself and she was part of a movement as big as history, and it explained the hole in her shirt. It's the beginning of summer tonight, and every season has cracks through which winter or fall might leak out. The most perfect flavor of it, oddly, in June. Oh, remember when I was an immigrant? 
I took a black beauty and got up from the pile of poems around my knees and just had too much energy for thought and walked over to your house where there was continuous beer. Finally, we were just drinking Rheingold, a hell of a beer. At the door, I mentioned I had a crush on both of you, what you say to a couple. By now, the kids were in bed. I can't even say clearly now that I wanted the woman, though it seemed to be the driving principle then, wanting one of everything. I was part of a generation of people who went to the bars on 7th Street and drank the cheap whiskey and the ale on tap and dreamed about when I would get you alone. Those big breasts. I carried slim notebooks which only permitted two or three word lines. I need you. Nearing the horse. There was blood in all my titles and milk. I had two bright blue pills in my pocket. I loved you so much. It was the last young thing I ever did, the end of my renaissance, an immigration into my dream world, which even my grandparents had not dared to live, being prisoners of schizophrenia and alcohol, though I was lovers with the two. The beauty of the story is that it happened. It was the last thing that happened in New York. Everything else happened while I was stopping it from happening. Everything else had a life of its own. I don't think I owe them an apology, though at least one of their kids hates my guts. She can eat my guts for all I care. I had a small hole in the front of my black sleeveless sweater. It was just something that happened. It got larger and larger. I liked to put my finger in it. In the month of December, I couldn't get out of bed. I kept waking up at 6 p.m. and it was Christmas or New Year's and I had to start drinking and eating. I remember you handing me the most beautiful red plate of pasta. It was like your cunt on a plate. I met people in your house, even found people to go out and fuck, regrettably not knowing about the forbidden fruit. I forget what the only sin is somebody told me recently. I have so many holes in my memory between me and the things I'm separated from. I pick up a book and another book and memory and separation seem to be all anyone writes about, or all they seem to let me read. But I remember those beautiful holes on my back like a beautiful cloak of feeling. All right, guys, there it is. That's Eileen Miles reading Holes, a poem from her new collection, I Must Be Living Twice. Uh, also, her novel, Chelsea Girls, out now as well. Two books from Echo. And uh, this right here is the conversation that Eileen Miles and I had uh, right after she read that poem. Here she is. This is Eileen Miles. Well, I was born in Cambridge, um, and but I'm, I was... I, Grew up in a town called Somerville, which is now like the kind of the Williamsburg of Boston. I was going to say it's like hipster, but it's like hipster yeah, Boston. But then it was Slummerville. It was just like the the, sh- the shitty working class place you didn't want to live, and you would dine and get out of to go to the suburbs. And then I moved to Arlington, which is now kind of the Park Slope of Boston. Great. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Boston bred, basic kind of suburban inner city working class, all that. What did your folks do? My dad delivered mail to Harvard, and my mother was a secretary at the Arlington Public High School. Okay. Yeah, not college-educated people, World War II people, um, smart people, sweet people, good-looking people, but not privileged people. Yeah. Well, I've read you. Like I've I've read interviews with you, or read uh, somewhere where you said that you, you know you you grew up kind of knowing that you were smart, but experiencing people not expecting you to be. Right. Right. And like, how early was that? Oh, to you. oh, really early? Because I was one of those kids who got in trouble in school and a girl who was, you know, a tomboy and just really awkward and stuff. And so I just remember one of my favorite stories is being in seventh grade and the nun calling me up to her desk. Catholic school. Catholic school, yeah, yeah. 12 years of Catholic school. And the nun saying, I'm not supposed to be telling you this, but you have the highest IQ in the whole seventh grade. And these were big class. So I had the highest IQ of 200 kids, I'm pleased to say. But she goes, but... 
I I was really surprised because from the faces you make, I thought you were mentally retarded, <laughs> you know, which is such a strange thing to tell a kid. And I went home and I told my mother and she was washing the dishes and she just sighed and said, oh, I lean. My God. It was a kind of a horrible. What was your IQ? Do you mind? It? I, you know, I don't know. Are you, I don't, am I, are you I mean, a genius? I, I mean, yeah, you're talking to a genius, of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever taken yeah. an IQ test. I don't Didn't know. they make you do it growing think, up? No, I mean, there were like certain te- like standardized yeah. tests, but I don't believe yeah. I ever got like an IQ test. Well, you know, I think part of a part of growing up near Cambridge is I think we were guinea pigs for a lot of oh, things. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, there was something in high school called, or was it in junior high called modern math, and it was basically calculus. But I think some people, a bunch of people from MIT decided, let's try it on the Catholic school kids. And it was great. I loved it. Yeah. Um, but they just never, again, they would use us for lots of things, but they would never connect it to anything. And, then, and okay. And so in your relationship with your parents was decent growing up? Yeah. I mean, it was just like a, both, you know, different. I mean, obviously, you know, my mother was the one who was really there and was really taking care of us and was steady. And my dad was like really great, really romantic, total, total drunk, you know? And so he was the the parent whose eye I got more and who really, I mean, I have to say as an artist, well, you know, you, you, there's different kinds of support, but my dad really saw what I was interested in and, and delivered, you know, it's just Did like, he, does he have any of that in him? Like the, the poetry was that there? He wanted to be a writer, you know, but I think he was probably more of an actor. He was a really good looking guy. He was a guy that seemed to be kind of a bit of a transvestite perhaps, but that was that world war two generation of guys were very con- um, confusing with menstrual shows and putting on dresses, and but my dad seemed to maybe inordinately like it. How know? do you know? Like, did you, did you see it? Well, yes, he would sort of when he got a little high, he would start to put on shows of various sorts and do a lot of changing his outfits quickly and entertaining us. But also, there were lots of pictures of him as a younger man, looking kind of amazing and drag. Right. Um, so he was, you know, he was a very, you know, kind of a rich. Um, playful funny guy who was art loving and i think he was more of a performer and a singer than a writer but i think he liked the idea of being a writer but that's where you you can trace your own i think it was valued and we all you know my family we were everybody was a huge reader everybody brought stacks of books home from the library it was like very um much um beloved my family my mother was a great reader yeah you know reading to us i mean you know she was an amazing reader i mean i feel like it's very funny she's she's somebody who wishes she went to high wishes she went to college and wanted to be a teacher but she was kind of a voice artist she was just incredibly good at you know performing you know she just didn't make much of it but there she was knocking us out every night and you're and like and you uh as a as a performer of your own work do you feel like you draw from them oh absolutely absolutely yeah yeah you have managed to live a kind of life as a poet and as mm-hmm. a New York poet and a New uh-huh. York writer in particular that eludes most people. Uh-huh. It can be, it's easily idealized. Yeah. And I yeah. know it probably wasn't as pretty going uh-huh. through it as it might seem in retrospect, you know, through other eyes. Right, right. But, you know, it is kind of true. Mm-hmm. You've managed to pull it off. I, You're a yeah. poet. You made, you, made a living, you make a living as a poet. Right. And a writer. Mm-hmm. You lived in New York. Right. How did you do it? Well, I think you just have to be really willing to reinvent yourself every 10 years or so, you know, because it would be like, say, in the 70s, it, po- poetry was cool, you know, Patti Smith, it was Jim Carroll, it was like poetry and rock and roll were affiliated, there was a style. By the 80s, I mean, I just say this all the time, by the 80s, if you told somebody you were a poet, they would sort of look at you like you were a mime. It just was not cool, you know, and I think... But it, w- the- but it wasn't that way in the 70s. 
In the 70s, it was hip to be a poet, you know, and, and I think it really was the speeding up of media and also the, the kind of transition of wealth into the East Village and art galleries and cocaine and limos and a whole thing that wasn't there 10 years. There was a cult of poverty and the rich and the poor, it was a kind of a hangover from the 60s. The rich and the poor liked to hang out together in the 70s. In the 80s, they did not. You know, it was like you Party's were either, over. <laughs> yeah, you were either going to make it or not. So it was like that was the time to move toward performance art, which was which was valued, or fiction started to be valued, you know. And so I had interests in both of those things. And so I kept writing poems, but I started to memorize my poems, which made me part of the performance scene. Right. You know? and Did you start to write to performance in a way that you hadn't previously? No, no. But I just knew which poems, if you put this one in your head and stood up and said it, would really work. Whereas this one is a little more abstract and works better on the page or... You know, yeah. So you could you could see the difference. Which one? Which one stuck to your body more? You know. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow," a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And, well, you know, and the thing, too, that you say about the 70s and about uh, the transition as you get into the 80s um, is that I think maybe a lot of the poets moved to campus. You, that started that, 80s, 90s. That started to happen, too. The MFA thing. Yeah. And, you, also, and also in the poetry world, it was started to be more language poetry, more theory-based. And so that moved beautifully into the academy, you know. So a whole lot of the poetry world decided to get PhDs. You know, which was another thing. Do you think of. something's lost when people do that, though? I mean, because like, is there like a, a homo- uh, was it homogeneity? Uh, um, yeah, but I mean, but I think I think you can write a great poem in an MFA program just as much as you can as a fisherman or, or as a waitress. You know, it's sort of like I think the I, for me, I just think the idea that one needs to be an academic to make a living as a poet is what's bad. You know, I think as long as nobody believes that, I think we're okay. You know, I don't think because and of course MFAs. I make part of my living reading, you know, reading at MFAs and teaching in them and stuff. And I mean, I think the system just isn't set, isn't rigged well for any artists, whether you're a painter or a poet. It's it's rigged for 
academics. And I think that's the problem, too. It's sort of like they ought to rethink the structure, and I don't know if they will do that. And bankers. It's rigged for them, too, it seems like. It's rigged for, it's rigged for corporations. <laughs> it's, rigged. it's like another way to suck money out of people and, and own their futures. Well, you know what pisses me off is that in every – it seems like in every structure uh, related to the intersection of art and commerce – the resistance to giving the artist money is so strong, and yet mm-hmm. there's always money for everybody else in the equation. Exactly. And it's exactly. like, my God, you know, like, w- w- you get money, you uh-huh. have a salary, you're getting paid. The tech person, the person who moves the lights gets a salary. Well, yeah, why is it, it, it's the hardest is to get the money to the artist. And even when you're, I mean, even now, so I'm traveling and I'm reading at colleges, it's very rare. And the richer the college the college the college is the less likely they will hand you a check after you read so you've traveled there you've stay, you know like in many cases i mean like my you know my publisher's supporting a lot of my travel but not all of it you know sure. we're counting on these schools and they just it'll come in a month or six weeks and i'm like dude you're at work i'm i'm i am too yeah you know so there's a lot of i mean and i've seen this change in my time too because when i started out um the the nea was supporting poetry and literature in america there was a feeling that that american art is supported by american government and american people you know and the other thing i think is it's time to bring back the wpa you know there's a lot of unemployed people there's a lot of unemployed artists why don't we spend our money you know giving artists jobs putting a poet in every library in america you know it's just like come on yeah or finding a way to get poetry into the public square absolutely you know to the wedding i mean i just I tell people all the time when i you know talk at schools it's like do weddings you know just like every saxophone play i was like oh gotta do a wedding i was like do weddings do funerals and somebody dies in your family say i got a poem that's a good idea absolutely poets should be hired to do weddings and funerals absolutely that's have, what we do. Have I mean, you we, done it? We do it for yes. My nephew got married, and I wrote him a um, poem. You ever married anybody? You like a minister or anything? Nah, I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Nah. Okay. That's um, somebody else's job, <laughs> right? So, what what age did you get to New York? Um, when I was twenty four. Twenty four. Yeah. And previous to that, I was the in, University of Massachusetts. Yeah, and then I I traveled. I did the thing like my generation. We all um, backpacked in Europe for six months, hitchhiked, took trains and stuff, and then I came back to Boston, then I went to San Francisco, and I tried to live there for a few months. It was a abysmal failure. Why? Because it scared me. Because, A, I hadn't really ever been on my own before, and it was very queer, very homosexual, it was very Jesus freak, and I wasn't ready to be gay yet. And You were Jesus freak? <laughs> no, I was an ex-Catholic. Yeah. So it just seemed like the joke was, you in San Francisco in the early 70s, you either became gay or a Jesus freak. Oh, okay. And I didn't want either one of these things. Yeah. And so I just was kind of a nervous kid who was trying not to drink too much, was trying not to eat too much, was trying not to smoke too much, and wanted to be a writer. And I just didn't know how to find my people and how to be, and I just was having a big old nervous breakdown, really. And after a few months, I just, you know, I had a, um, I've always loved photography as an art form, and even, I take pictures, I love to take, I love Instagram, all that stuff I want to talk to you about that. So, um, so I bought a, a Minolta, and I took a lot of pictures in San Francisco. And at the moment, I freaked out. I just pawned it and bought a Greyhound ticket back to Boston quick because I was scared, you know. And then I got back to Boston. The funny, I got back to Boston and discovered that I had already left. There was no coming back. They already, all my high school friends, my college friends, had all, already had every going away party they were going to have for me. And now I was just like a ghost. Yeah. And so I hung out for a year, and then I went to New York, which is the place I always wanted to be. And you found your people. Yeah. Where totally. were they? 
They were, well, they just, I mean, it was sort of like, I mean, the thing that I noticed in, in San Francisco was the people I really loved were from New York and New Jersey, and they were tended to be Jews, you know, and it was just like, I felt like I went to New York, and like there was just a whole population of people who were so interesting, and, and there's I mean, an not af- like, There's an affinity, because I was raised Catholic, too. Yeah. There's an affinity between Catholics and Jews, I the, feel like. We get something, I think. I, I think is, what is it, the guilt? Yeah, I think it might be the guilt, but it was sort of like, but we're like weird private guilt, and Jews are sort of public tribal guilt, <laughs> you know? So I think this sort of like, I think we sort of enjoy each other's trampoline in some way. Yeah. You know? And I found the poet. It's like, I didn't know, too, that when I first got to New York, I thought I'd meet people, and I would quickly see that all their friends are artists, or all their friends are poets, and I thought that was bad. I thought picking people for to be your friends on the basis of what they had was like using people you know I just didn't get it so there was a whole education when I first got to New York about what, do you, how, what do you mean by, by that well I think it's just sort of like it was bad to be picky I was supposed to have friends out of like who I work with and who I went to school with and I don't know who I wanted to have sex with but not like a career choice kind of like you're a writer I want to hang out with you and get what you have right you know I that seemed kind of there was just a it was there was a bourgeoisness to it that that I didn't quite understand you know and I didn't understand that that's how you make community you go towards people who who have what you want who like 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 belongs with like yeah you know so was, you made peace with that like you figured that out yeah and also and also that the people I mean, I've said this a lot. I think noticing and realizing and accepting that the people near me who were doing things were actually doing them. You know what I mean? Like at Boston, it was like if somebody was driving a cab and they said they were writing a novel, they were driving a cab. Right. They were never going to finish that novel. <laughs> right, right. And in New York, if they were writing a novel, they may be selling their novel next month or next year. They may be – the band on the fourth floor was Blondie. I was just like, the band on the fourth floor. And then I was like, oh <laughs> – it took a year of understanding that people were for real. They were doing it. And that's what was so great about New York. I was like, oh, it's not just coincidental that Andy Warhol was here going to parties and Alan Ginsberg is going to parties. Everybody else at the party is somebody too, or lots of lots of people are. Was it welcoming? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was young. I was cute. I had, you know, like, I, and it's so funny. It's like, because Patti Smith and Bruce Springsteen were like working class kids, I thought, oh, why don't I play a working class kid from Boston, which is what I was. So it was very easy to, to be who I was. But I think I think kind of kind of deliberately didn't lose my accent because I thought that was special. Well, but, you know, like there's something to be said for embracing, I mean, A, just embracing who you are in a truthful, in a truthful way, but embracing that part of yourself. And also we all need to bring our home with us. You know, it's sort of like ruling class people are sort of at home everywhere because it's their world. And I think people from other class backgrounds um, need to kind of articulate what they have and what they got and and value it because it's totally the texture of our existence. Right. You know, it's real. Well, and like and to do what you've done and to go into New York City and want to be I mean, for anybody who wants to be any kind of writer, but I think especially for Mm -hmm. poets. The financial challenges loom large. Right. right. And that's something that uh, you've been able to manage. And uh, I think you've talked about like a willingness. You've know, you got to have a willingness to be poor if you're going to be a writer. Which, which, is, which is kind of glamorous if you grew up rich, but it's a little scary if you grew up poor. So I, you know, I, I just made up all sorts of stuff in my head about who I was so that I would be comfortable. You know, I would like sometimes I would pretend in my head that I was a wealthy person who was pretending to be poor so that she could be on the scene. You know, it was just like all sorts of stuff protected me. It was just a sense of magic that you just had to have in order to believe your own myth and just keep, you know, 
trundling along but but also but you know but it was also you know it was fun it was easy it was easier to be poor it was easy to you know like my you could live in the city 115 dollars a month for my rent you know it was just like people wanted to have cute young poor people around who were interesting <laughs> and and you know exhibitionistic and stuff and so there was just there was room people you know people lots of people with a not a lot more money than me had lost so there were big dance parties i mean there was a just there was a diversity at that time because um people could meet in large spaces that were not private i mean that that were private right. but they were private like you or i owned this Place, and it's know? a giant loft in like downtown New York. Yeah, so it meant that it wasn't just the poets or it wasn't just the dancers. It was everybody and their friend. Was it better back then? It was just different, you know. Because there's a like, big there's a big moment I feel like right now, not only with your work but also yeah. with like uh, City on Fire. It's like in the zeitgeist right now. It's kind of like we're in love with like New York in the seventies. Yeah. Do you feel that? Well, it's sci-fi. You know, it's sort of like would you be in love with it? I mean, not everybody who was there then was in love with it. Lots of people were really uncomfortable and left and couldn't stand it. You know, I think it worked for who it worked for. You know, and 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 come on, this is a very interesting moment we're living in now in terms of technology, in terms of new media, in terms of you know, like the the new art form, which is these TV shows. Everybody's like, if you're not writing one, you're like. Which one are you watching? Right. You know, we all have these obsessive private lives. It's like the new, you know, the new 19th century, the new Dickens is the serialized novel that is on the, you know, is on the internet, is on, on cable TV. It's, and you embrace that. Oh, yeah. See, because that's just the thing about you, because it's not always this way with, with people in general, with artists. Like, you don't resist the new. You're not stuck in the past. Um, and, like, when you talked earlier about having to reinvent yourself every 10 years as a, as a method of survival, mm-hmm. um, I mean, those two things go hand in hand. You know, being willing to experiment with new, being willing to look at it and not look down your nose at it. Like, oh, I knew, I knew better back when or whatever. Right. Not resisting it. My feeling is that I haven't gotten it right yet. <laughs> you know, it's like, I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just always a work in process, right? You get something right, but something else does not work and stuff. So I feel like dissatisfaction and pleasure move me along. You know, and and people, of course, you meet somebody interesting, somebody amazing, and they show you something new. Um, I want to talk about uh, social media, and I want to talk about the internet as it relates to poetry, because this is something um, that you've embraced. It's something that I feel like lends itself uh, well to poetry. Uh-huh. The tweet, yeah, the internet, right, right, right. being able to post and share, um, even Instagramming, right. You know, like you can caption photos in a way that, you know, I guess aspires to poetry. Uh-huh. Um, do you think that, I mean, like, do you feel like your work has gotten, uh, like has expanded its reach because of that in a way that's really significant? I mean, I guess it's, I mean, every kind of, um, I just think everything is a new form of distribution. I mean, I think the big problem of the artist is not wealth, it's distribution. It's sort of like how to how to hand the thing that you're doing to the next hand, to the next hand, to the next hand. So as long, I mean, it's sort of like when we, when, when the internet began, we were all like, oh my God, you know, like, and, and though nobody knew what we would do with it and what it would mean, you know, and, and often it just seemed like the burden of so much email. But I think social media is, is remarkable. I mean, that's what, when you actually, when you ask me who or what, it's, I, I think it's anonymous, the thing that I'm excited about, about, it's sort of like this really, people talked about online communities when we first went online, but now it, it, they exist, I think, in social media a lot. You know, it's sort of like when somebody says, give me your email list for this event, I'm like, ah, my email, everybody's moved. I don't know that I know anybody's email, but if I'm doing something, I just tweet and, and, and you try and make a joke. It seems like it's almost like 
if you want to dance, you got to pay the piper. I mean, I kind of am so bored by people whose tweets are only publicity. You know, I feel like I want to give you all the parts of my life so that the publicity is just another piece floating in all that. You right. Know? You don't hammer people. Yeah, because it's, I mean, but it's it's so kind of, I just, the word that always strikes me is most apt is radiant, you know, because you're sort of walking along the surface of the earth being alive and you're kind of, you're just negotiating this curve, you know, which is travel, which is living. And it's sort of like every moment you just see something, you know, and it's been that thing like, I mean, what is it all our lives where there are certain corners we saw one day passing a bus and you just saw that corner and meant nothing, but for some reason it stays in your head all your life. And so now what you have is the opportunity to share that corner when you see it, you know, share that little line of poetry or verbiage or whatever. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop poems from from coming. In fact, I think it's sort of like you're sort of fluffing all the time. You're a whole, you know, like, do you go back to your social media when you're sitting down to write poetry and maybe like sort like sift through it and find lines? Nah, nah. I feel like I would, the pleasure I think is it's sort of like, I remember once hearing about some poets workshop at Naropa was like getting people to write poems and then make them into little boats and drop them into the Boulder Creek and just watch them go away, you know? And I feel like it's more of that order. And I think that's in a way that's like the base of art is that on some level, everything now or later will be gone. You know, we have to reckon with that. No, I tweeted this morning. I was like, it just occurred to, you know, these things just occur to you and you just, you know, you spit them out. But I was like, one day soon, all of your Twitter followers are going to be dead. And then I, (laughs) and then I was thinking to myself like, God, these Twitter, these Twitter feeds with like 2.7 million followers. And eventually it's going to be 2.7 million dead followers. Right. Sort of a mind blowing. Oh, what are they going to do with my dead tweets? I mean, you know, you know, it's sort of it's really weird, they li- right? They live on, I guess. I mean, in fact, there is a company, and I don't know how I know this. This is like one of those things you pick up on the internet. But there is a company that that was hired by the net. What is it? The National Library, the National Archive, or something? Right. They were working with a government institution to archive all tweets. Yeah. Like for the historical record, yeah, yeah. No, so they can actually, be they can be sifted through, and it makes total sense. And 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 I, as a poet, it's liberatory to hear hear about that because the thing that's so weird is I'm like like I'm really caught between generations. Like most poets of my age have already sold their papers to some library, you know, and um, and you know I will do that. But um, but you have all your papers. Well, that, that's another story. But I have I have most of them. I've been very careful, but. I've had a small disaster, which probably. I, Did you? How soon? Like how soon? In, how early in your career were you thinking one day I'm going to sell my papers? <laughs> day one. Day one. Oh yeah, you just knew the certain. I mean, that's just like as soon as you heard about it, you just know there's there's gold in them hills. Yeah. You just knew that, you know. And so I've napkins and flyers and notebooks and you know I've got I've got everything. The weirdly, the thing is strange. I have two much fetishized boxes, which are. Before the day of the computer, I would, you know, like each year would end and I would put all my typescript poems, originals into this little spring binder and, and they were all in a box. And then I had an amazing box of photographs of incredible, you know, like me hugging Adrian Rich and Allen Ginsberg's photo. I don't know. I have everything but those two boxes. Oh. You know, it's the word. I mean, it's sort of like I feel like I need to write something about it and put it out it's into the world. a lost treasure. And, I mean, like, the sad part is it's sort of like they will turn up, but I may, I may not be alive when right. I turn up. Right. Unless, you know, unless I'm homeless. You know, in New York, it's like I have a truck that is so easy to break into. It's quite possible after some trip they were in the back and, you know, some homeless person thought, I need more room for my shopping cart right. and put my papers out and, and moved in and I never noticed. You know, I mean, it's sort of it's sort of possible. But, but I've, you know, but I've, I've saved a lot. But 
when you when you sell your papers at that moment I mean, the thing is, people stopped writing letters once the internet. Well, began. I was going to say, papers is a different. Like, how do papers for millennial writers? How is that going to happen? Yeah. They're going to just have like their Gmail account. Right. Here's the keys. So, so for us, so for us, those of us who were caught in the in between, supposedly you were to start printing out your emails. Once you sold your papers to this library and they have all your letters up until 1995, then you're supposed to like. Um, print out all your significant emails. Now, who's going to do that? No, I did no it for one. like a week. Yeah, and that's then a pain never... in the ass. So the, the tweet thing you mentioned, I think, is really exciting because my tweets are the interesting letters. And if, if the National Archives has them, cool. Yeah. Yeah. They'll be somewhere. Yeah. I love Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Good words. Even a good name. So uh, Marfa, Texas. Yeah. And New York City. Great combination. That's same, like the perfect... Same. It's the perfect. It's like yeah. yin and yang. Like, You've been to Marfa. No. But I've like I know writers who've done it. I've read about it. I yeah. long to go there. Yeah, it's sort of. But I know that it's like pretty much the opposite of Lower Manhattan. It isn't. It isn't. And in fact, part of I think part of that fetishization of the '70s is alive and well in Marfa. I think a lot of the reason young people like to go to Marfa is it's sort of a small town. It's a little bit like the way the East Village was in the. It's like a walking culture. I mean, you can drive, and the Blue Mountains are right over there and stuff. But there's like this gallery. And this is happening this weekend, and this this you know, desert surf movie festival weekend, yeah. and everybody in town's going to that because there's nothing else to do, and we're having hamburger night, you know, and it just it's really a funny place, but also you can just stay in. People people say, well, yeah, no, I think that she's here, but she doesn't go out. Once in a while, she goes out, you know, and so I, I when I. When I first I went there on a um, residency last spring, and I just had an amazing writing experience. And suddenly, I was like, oh "What my happened?" God. Well, I finished a book. Okay. I finished a book like boom. Was this, is this the sci-fi novel? Yes, this is. Um, it's called Afterglow, and it's about my pit bull. Yeah. And her destiny. Yeah, she passed away. She died. Yeah, she lived from 1990 to 2006. I'm Bro- sorry, Rosie. Yeah, I get. On, I now I'm with Honey. Honey, the the okay. new pit bull, the golden pit bull. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It sucks that uh, we outlive our our pets usually. Well, it's so weird to have, I mean, it's one thing to have two and four year relationships with human beings, but you have these 10 and 16 year relationships with animals, which is so intense. It's like generations. Yeah. Well, and it's also like, it's, I mean, it's a marker of your own mortality. I feel like, you know, I can kind of mark my life. My, my border colleague Merlin was like my twenties. Right. And now I've got this French bulldog named Walter. He's like my thirties into my forties. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then they go and you sort of, I don't know. My border collie really hit me hard. Yeah, I'm sure. I still get upset about him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they're not all the same. Every pet is different. You get a new pet, and this amazing thing is happening. But that other thing, the other pet, is not happening. No, the connections differ. I mean, they're still, I mean, listen, I love my dog, but yeah. um, there's something there was something deep about this border collie. Like, what was the border collie's name? Merlin. So it's just like you look at this dog, just not Merlin. No. Well, <laughs> and it's a different breed, too. Border collies yeah. are, like, wicked smart, and yeah. you can have, like, you have conversations with them. Where are you from? Uh, Indiana. Okay. You say wicked. I thought that sounds very Massachusetts. No, no, no. I don't even know why. I mean, sometimes I guess I say wicked, but, um, Midwest, Milwaukee and Indiana. Uh, and then went on to school at Boulder. So when you're talking about Naropa and Boulder Creek, yeah, yeah, Boulder Creek, I know that. So, um, but your dog, Rosie, Rosie, yeah. uh, was that like the pet with whom you had the deepest connection that you've had? Yeah. She was kind of my, she was kind of my first pet really. I sort of wanted a dog forever and parents wouldn't allow me to get it so finally at the age of 40 i was allowed to have a dog <laughs> by me you know yeah i gained permission right and so yeah. this book is about her 
It is. It is. And it's, you know, and it's about all those things that you just were saying about, uh, you know, mortality and time and relationships. And but but it's it's so, you know, it's like when my dad was alive, when my dad was alive, we were pretty close. And so and he died. He died young and I was young when he died. And so when I looked what happened into, with him, well, it was an accident, but it was alcohol related, you know, um, the car accident or fell off the roof. Oh, yeah. I mean, he didn't die immediately. He died in a couple of weeks. He had a cerebral hemorrhage because of the fall um so when i got rosie and i looked into her eyes i just thought it's him it's him he came back he wants to hang out for a few more years and so i just love that feeling i carried it with me all the time i had the same this. color eyes or what was it there's something about the feeling in those eyes i was just like it's dad it's totally dad you know and she didn't she didn't rebuff that idea she just kind of just very deep philosophical dog i mean well probably deeper than my father really <laughs> but um you, so, you you believe people can come back, like reanimate or reincarnate? No, you know what I think. The thing I because I've not been a big reincarnation person. Finally, I think it's the DNA. I think that um, I think our cells have memories. It's sort of like when people go, you know, I was a, I was a pharaoh in Egypt. They're always it's always it's always, it's always royalty, right? It's never like I was a. a peasant or a hooker in the streets of Cairo. You exactly. Know what I'm exactly. So, I mean, I just think we're both. For some reason, you choose not to stop on the, you know, on the peasant. You know, you choose to stop on the, the king or the queen. Fonder memories, maybe. Yeah. I but I just think it's like, I just think it's on, it's written on our DNA, all those stories, you know, because I feel like landscape, when I go to, you know, like I love the Northwest, I love Ireland, that, that, that damp, alcoholic, rainy weather just feels like, I mean, like, it doesn't necessarily bring out the best in me, but it brings out something that really, really feels like me. And I think that's just like... Good for writing? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I wrote much... I, I wrote the more passionate and the, um, you know... I mean, I, I wrote basically the end of the dog book in Ireland, you know. I where, where in Ireland? Um, well, several places. In Belfast, which was terrific. And then in um, near Limerick, the, uh, there was a place called Glenstall Abbey, where a, a poet friend, Fanny Howe, recommended. Like Fanny, I, you know, Fanny's Irish. I mean, I'm, I have Irish citizenship through my grandparents, and so does Fanny. And so for years, I was wanting to spend real time in Ireland. I'd been there a handful of times. And so basically, Fanny just gave me her Irish list, and I just, you know, I just went to where she said go. And, and How long were you there for? About six months. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. And so I just kind of let those those identities and those selves and those, you know, and I was, I was in other places too, right? Always, um, Istanbul, which is an amazing place. And so all, all of that kind of wealth kind of came into my book and it was wonderful. And it's done now. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, when's it coming out? Well, it's at market now. My, oh, my agent is showing it to people. So, oh, yeah, I wish you luck. Thank you. Um, so Allen Ginsberg. Yeah. You, you've known a lot of people. I was shocked when I got to New York to realize you could just meet Ellen Ginsberg. You know? What was he like? He was great. He was very warm. He was very generous. Um, he was very enthusiastic. I, I was at a, I d- gave a reading when I was 25 at the New York Poets Cafe, and he ran up and said, who are you? It was so amazing, and he wanted, you know, and but he was so funny, too, because he was quickly wanting to move you into his sexual family. You know, he got that I was a dyke, but he quickly wanted me to sleep with his boyfriend who slept with women. It was just like... The way I've heard, it, I've heard that story told. Like he's a he was a, a very sexual person. Oh, totally. And that was. And then he would say, "Do you have a girlfriend?" I would say, "Yeah." And he would say, "Are you monogamous?" And I would say, "No." And he would smile and go, "Good, good." <laughs> he was like the other kind of uncle. He was so amazing, you know. Yeah, he and he was in Boulder for a spell. 
Yeah. But, then he, but he, at the end of his life, he was back in New York. He was in New York, yeah. He, 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 his presence, and we just like, when he died, we realized that there was just like, we didn't have anyone anymore who you'd be doing your reading or something, and you'd look into the audience, you're like, Alan's here. But you that's know? the thing about him, though, because like, he's a legend. Uh, and as, as much as a person could be yeah. in the world of literature and poetry, I mean, the guy was a legend and sort of the, what, the Walt Whitman of the 20th century? Oh, yeah, and he never stopped showing up. He never stopped being present. Like, he'd, he'd, like the New Year's benefit at St. Mark's, it would like be, be like nine hours long, and Alan would just sit in the front row for the whole thing. I mean, it's just like he... He, he liked he, the party. He wanted, exactly, he did not want to ever leave the party, you know? Yeah. He was amazing. So, um, the word legend. Uh-huh. That's sort of affixed to you. I've, I've, I've heard it affixed like around you. How, how do you. How do you feel about that? Well, you know, it's sort of like, it can be a little creepy, right? I mean, like my my joke, because people have literally said to me, it's so great that you're not dead. Like I'm having a moment <laughs> and it's wonderful because dead poets are the famous ones, right? Right. You know, we haven't had a famous poet for a while. You know, right. I'm like, maybe I'm going to get to be the famous poet. That you would know? be great, right? Yeah, I'm into it. That's a rare seat. Yeah. I mean, I sort of, it was when I knew Alan, when I watched his behavior and his activity, it just seemed like what it afforded you was an opportunity to talk about things that need to be talked about, like politics and gender. And to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, because I think, you know, a poet is just like a talking dog. It's sort of like, you're like the poet of something. There's always, like, I think cultures, movements, moments need their poets. You know, it's sort of like, you're kind of the spokesperson in a way. I mean, that's one, I mean, that's one definition. And do you, what do you feel like you're this, like, what's the... What's the identity ascribed to you? What, who are you the voice of? I mean, I think of a, a bunch of different things, but I think it's sort of like maybe a, a bunch of interlocking communities that are queer and stuff, you know, female things. But, you know, it's sort of like I'm not, you know, like an old time feminist and some a post, 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 post feminist, whatever that is. And all, you know, the gender stuff has been up for me for as long as I, I mean, I love the art world. It's sort of like, I'm, you know, there's a, there's a kind of way, I mean, I think one of the things that we're all trying to learn now is how to kind of, um, to not be like stratified into all these. I think all the things that the corporate thing and the MFA thing and everything can make people be all in their tiny niches, you know? And it's sort of like, I've never survived through niches. I've survived through, grabbing this vine and that vine and that vine. So this, I think that's a kind of aesthetic diversity that I champion, you know? And, and, and it, I mean, queer means every, queer, queer just means oddly shaped, you know? And, I, and I'm all for that because I feel like we don't want everything to just fit and squeak and close down. Yeah. You know? Have things improved? Which things? Things for, uh, for gay people, things for women. Uh, I like, I, you know, there's just... Uh, it seems like we have such a far way to go and it seems like we've been having some of the same arguments for and difficulties for like such a long time right. and it can be disheartening because you're like what's it going to take for people i don't i mean i think it's it's the conversation has changed and i think the conversation is occurring and i think that's really great and i think you know like the whole the whole you know presence of transgender issues in america is making everybody think about gender i mean i, I always screw up the name of this band and i don't know why um no uh was it no lo, no lo tango what is it yo, yeah, no la tango yo no la tango yo la tango yo la tango yeah. yeah that when i saw them in around 2002 do a gig with la tigra and la tigra opened and then they got up the yolo tango and they said that's really great they're really cool because like we don't do gender and everybody in the room was like, dude, you don't do gender, you know? And I just think, I mean, for everybody to understand that it's just like gender is everybody's issue, you know? It's sort of like, and, and, and it's, and I think to kind of 
kind of untrammel that as something that like you know women and feminists and gay people are doing would make you know like you know we're fighting it at the bathroom door but but that's actually a deep place to fight it you know the airport is the is the most kind of oppressive place in america really you know it's just like how so well it's just like if you don't look right you're a terrorist yeah. You know, it's just like everybody gets harassed Such at the airport. Such a fucking pain in the ass at the airport. It's a military moment. Yeah. You know, and that's a problem. Well, but it's like, God, who was probably Bill Maher saying it or something, but it was like one guy tried to blow up a plane with a bomb in his shoe, and now everyone's got to take their shoes off. Right. Like the fear response proportionate to an incident is out of control. Right. Because um, they wouldn't do that again. They would do something else. You How would stupid. think... You, know. you would think they wouldn't repeat, but yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I, it seems like we should be able to uh, not have to go through all that right. dehumanization. Right. Yeah. Um, touring. Touring. How, how often do you tour? Um, maybe a little too often. You know, I mean, my dream, I suppose, is to kind of seasonalize and just have, like, I write at this period of time and I travel. Because I, I, I love it. I mean, it's sort of like... Is, is it an essential part of it for you, like going out and having that personal exchange with, like, with uh, your audience or with potential readers? Totally, totally. It's just like, and and also it's visiting your friends. I mean, yeah. it's just you know, it's like your our community is like a diaspora, really. It's so like I had so many friends who used to live in New York and friends who never lived in New York, and so when I get to San Francisco, I see Kevin and Doty. You know, when I get to, you know, Los Angeles, I these see these people. It's just you know, it's so. That's, you know, but also it's just like you kind of like revisit people that you don't even know and they've been coming to your readings for years. And I mean, I just think it's it's I think that's for me, that's where literature is most alive, you know, on the mouth. And I don't mean like spoken word. I've never really liked that language. But I think the moment of inception, like when the moment of composition to a big extent for me is sonic, you know, like when I'm writing, I'm kind of hearing. You Are know? you saying it aloud? No, no, no. But I'm 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 as a listener. I mean, I think I, I feel a little bit like I'm, I'm something scribe. Yeah. You know, I'm taking dictation in a way, and I feel that way for poetry and prose. And so when you get in front of an audience, I feel like it just kind of makes that moment happen again. Yeah, and what makes for a good poetry reading? And like, what makes, like, how have you refined your performance style over the years? What do you think you have to do to be effective? Well, for me, I think it's allowing more silence. I think the most powerful thing in a group of people assembled together is the capacity to be silent together and so every poem i know i write has is loaded with silence you know i mean the, the one that i read here isn't weirdly it's like a one breath poem but lots of them you know it's sort of like you know you read this stanza and then there's a break and you're almost counting and you're like boom 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 because it's 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 music you know it's sort of like it's the score for something that only i hear and it probably is my blood or something my heartbeat you know and so it's sort of like it took me years to understand that i had the right to take that time that i wasn't being pretentious that i wasn't putting on air i mean you know, all these things or or sounding foolish you know there's all these physical hand gestures that i do that it's like i feel like i'm having sex with some invisible body or something you know but it's like i can't get the sounds out unless i do it yeah you know so it's sort of like but there's I, something to be there's something to be said on, like on both sides of the ledger for being like a kinetic physical performer but at the same time knowing when to be silent and to let it be silent uh-huh. because i think the impulse when you're in front of people and you're holding a microphone can be to just keep talking to keep them you know entertained and right, want right. to fill that void but yeah. there's power in that silence and when the, yeah and then you let the room come in then mm. you let everybody breathe you know and um and it, and i think it 
creates real community on on some level that that we don't even know how to talk about as creatures do you get and then like you know uh, to kind of expand on the notion of silence um and talking about you know your split residences between new york and marfa marfa's got to be a hell of a lot quieter yeah you know martha i have to say marfa is sort of mythic i've probably spent a total of 45 days in my life in marfa okay up to this moment because i was there for a month and then i bought this house and then it was like getting fixed and getting fixed and I was camped out in motels waiting for it to get you know and now two young poets and my dog honey are living in my house in Marfa so I look forward to what do you what's the being, plan like do you want to like split time like do yeah. like what is it this uh, winters in Marfa and summer you know what is it you know I don't know what it looks like I think I feel like I'm kind of like improvising like I started to think oh I, I have the, the number four months sounded right to me and so like I think I'm gonna spend a few I'll spend my birthday this year which is in December in Marfa so I'll be there for a couple of weeks and then I'll be back there a couple of weeks in January. And part of the, and I'm trying to figure out how to move a dog around the country. That's you yeah, know yeah. part of the trick. So. You don't, do you fly them? Well, I haven't done it yet. In the, in the, I, I, that, that freaks me out to put them in the, the hold. Lo, yeah, the hold. And I the, don't want to do that. I've no. had little dogs, and it's so easy. But a bigger dog, so that that troubles me. And I'm I'm looking to see. I think anything you can articulate a need a, a need for, you usually fine. Because I feel like there must be some kind of dog bus. Just tweet about it. Someone will drive your dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had, I have, I have a, a wonderful assistant um, who drove my dog to Marfa this summer. You okay. know, and that was amazing. And so I feel like I'm, I'm probably willing to drive her one way. But that, actually, my truck is not good enough. My, my truck now lives in Marfa. What I kind think. of truck you got? A Ford Ranger. Okay, but yeah. an older one. To 1999. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Still good enough. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good, but I think it only has so many cross country trips left in it, and I think the next one could kill it. Right. I don't want that to happen. <laughs> you don't want to be in the middle of nowhere. I don't nowhere. want to be in that dying truck, yeah. Um, okay, so I want to know how you write a poem. I know there's probably a million ways, but right. generally, what does it look like? You talked earlier about like, you know, seeing a certain corner, uh, passing a certain corner, seeing a person, getting these snippets or whatever it is out of life, and then eventually, what happens and you're sitting down and actually composing? Um, it's weird. It's sort of like a certain kind of line that goes deep. You know, it's sort of like here a line and it's almost like it sinks below its own surface. And so you feel like there's like more under there, you know, and it's sort of like if you if you put that line down, you'll start to feel the rest of the animal. You know, what I mean, you just kind of um, so it's kind of funny. I mean, I often don't know how long the poem will be, you know, and Do they usually come fast. Yeah, but I mean, I, sometimes I edit, sometimes I don't, depending on whether I got it right the first time you know but it's sort of it's like it's kind of a vibrational thing it's sort of like it almost feels like it precedes me in some way and so it's just kind of like i get that first line and then i gotta you sometimes you have to wait a little bit you know and sort of like keep listening and um travel is good travel is really good for writing poems you know and being even the worst parts of travel being stuck suddenly it's like you're having a layover in el paso yeah and you're there for hours well it's so funny you say that because i'm so always so like social media i see this maybe most prominently these days but whenever somebody's traveling they have so much to say and it's so interesting yeah do you know what i'm saying yeah. i'm like god i'm just i'm at home like feeding a baby right watching netflix or whatever uh -huh. in all hours of the day just because that's what you can do you right, know right, but right. i'm sitting watching people travel and it's like my god they their lives are so interesting. Right. It right. feeds you. It feeds you. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Well, it reminds me, years ago, a friend of mine from Los Angeles moved to New York. And I remember him saying when he first got to New York, he was like, when do you guys think? And what he meant was that in Los Angeles, he would think when he was in his car. Yeah. He would think when he was stuck in traffic. And he couldn't imagine when we thought in New York. Which is what? Subway? Walking around? 
all you think differently. You think you kind of it's like that thing Walter Benjamin. I mean, the the, the kind of shocks. You know, like we, you think when you bump into people, you think when you, you know, you think when, when the, I mean, I suppose when the subway stops, but actually you don't really think then you think when you stay in, but it's sort of like, it's a different, it's a totally different shaped kind of thinking, Yeah. you know, which is why people freak out when they move from New York to California as writers, you have to figure out how to do it again. You like it out here? I do. Yeah, I do. It's not so bad. No, no, no. It's great. I mean, I miss the walking. I mean, that's, again, that's why I like Marfa. It's just like. I'm kind of a hoof person, and, and L.A., it's so like there's a lot of... So wait, and forgive me for not knowing, but in Marfa, you can walk all over the place. It's just a tiny little village? Small town, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so there's just like, I mean, you you know, there's plenty of places to drive to, too, but you can you can basically walk from any part of town almost to any other. But like residentially speaking, everybody lives kind of around the main drag? Or? Well, it moves out. It's a, You know, it's like it takes some space, but okay. it's sort of like the area where the bank and the post office and the store and, the, you know, like... The bars and the restaurants are all very close, yeah. you know, and that is the only center, you know, so it's not like there's all these strip malls in other parts of town. I mean, there are, you know, there's other, you know, restaurants up the street and stuff like that, but it's sort of like there's a lot right in the center. When you go for your groceries, you will always run into somebody. Always. You know, it's sort of like Provincetown. It's another place that was like that. Yeah. Where I like living. I think about that sometimes and I'm like, God, I'd love to live someplace where you just, you run into people and you know your neighbors and it's, mm-hmm. you have the, but then it's like, do you really want to see them every time? <laughs> You got to get groceries. Because <laughs> there's the joke. That's the other side of it. Everybody who lives in that place, they were like, ah, yeah. You know, I, I have just, to go stay in for a, two weeks. I, yeah, I just wanted to get some bananas. I yeah. didn't want to have like an hour and a half conversation. And, yeah, because everybody just knows you got divorced. Right. Just like <laughs> looking at you. How's he doing? You no. know. Yeah, it's the way yeah. it works. Yeah. Um, television. Yeah. Transparent. Uh huh. Is a character based on yes. you. That yeah. So this is the Amazon show. Yes. Like the uh, you know award winning. Yeah. Right, critically right. adored. Right, right. Um, when did you know that that was happening? Um, From inception, or I think when I started, it was like I I was on a panel. I was in a panel at the Jewish Museum in okay. um, May with Michelle T and Jill Soloway, and so I think that I think it was before that, and then I think it was like Jill met me, and then the character became more Eileen like, uh-huh. I think. And then they start then they actually started to ask me questions about wardrobe. So I actually <laughs> had some say in which you know and then I think What the did joke, you say? Well I was like those pants aren't tight enough, that yeah. shirt is too loose. I yeah. don't wanna it shouldn't be a baggy academic dyke and stuff. And then I think the joke became <laughs> that, that they decided that I would be her friend. And so then I'm like I have three cameos in the season, so I have two poems and three cameos in season two, which is really funny. And so I I watch you know the Eileen it's not you know it's not we don't have to call you know it's like a character named Leslie Saginaw um, that Cherry Jones plays, and I watch her read a poem yeah. of mine. Yeah. And I'm like at the Women's Music Festival watching it. It's very funny. Cherry Jones I saw in uh, Shanley, John Patrick Shanley play was it. She played a nun. Oh yes, I think it was she made was into in a doubt. movie. Doubt. Yeah, yeah. Holy cow, is she good? She's great. Yeah, she's sort of like everybody's favorite actor. Yeah, she's amazing, and she's great. She personally is great. I like her. I saw like she. They, it came out to Los Angeles. We don't, you know, we don't always get the the theater uh-huh. that New York gets. But I remember right. going, and it was just one of those like could have heard a pin drop. Right. You know, experiences like she totally owned it. Yeah, no, no, she's everybody's favorite actress. She's kind of incredible actress, actor. I think she's an actor. Yeah. Nah. Do you have any interest in writing for TV or developing your own stuff? Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. No, I think it will be. T- I think it will be totally fun. Yeah, I'm totally thinking about it. I mean, I don't think there's a writer alive right now who is right. thinking about it. It's really <laughs> fun. I mean, because it is. It is the hot medium. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like. I mean, I think we all love books and and writing for the page because that's where we learned our our you know our business. But I think it's sort of like to see what to see what happens when when the words go. I mean, I've written plays, and it's sort of a little frustrating. I think the thing that's so great about um, TV is it's like kind of a one-off. It's even quicker than film. You know, they're like pumping the series out. Well, and the, like the length of narrative. I mean, yeah. like the novelistic narrative that television can do now. Right. Uh, and the thing is, I too, and I think literary is dead. I mean, I think, I mean, literally, truly, even in books. I mean, I think the form that, I mean, I grew up watching TV. I, as much as I read a lot when I was a kid, I still watch more television. Well, and you, like, the, you know, we talk about like Chelsea Girls or like the fiction that you've written often works in these bursts um, which you have described as like little films yeah yeah you know so that's definitely part of your style it was the only way I could organize narrative I realized when I tried to think in terms of writing a story I didn't know I didn't know how it worked I didn't know how it could be organized but I knew how pitches moved you know and so I just let I just download I would I would go to a place that I knew and download the pictures you know and they would tell the story yeah yeah so um You've got the science fiction novel about the dog. Right. You've got these two books. Uh-huh. As if you don't have enough going on, I'm going to yeah. ask you what else you have going on. Like, right. Do you have a plan for the future? Is it something that uh, – are you a person who does that, who like charts a course? Or are you more instinctive in day-to-day and you just sort of figure it out? I'm a little, I'm a little puzzled right now. I mean, it's sort of like when I look at the spring, I'm supposed to teach a class um, at NYU. And part of me thinks, well, shouldn't, shouldn't I just go to Marfa and, you know – write a TV show or something or write, or, you know, it's, I think about Chelsea girls as a movie. So I, you know, and that's a real fantasy of mine too. I think it's like, it's such a movie, come on. But, you know, and, and actually and not really knowing on some level, does one, you know, it's like, does one write their own screenplay or does somebody else write, you know? I mean, I think years ago, a, a one, one um, story from Chelsea girls got optioned and, and initially they wanted me to write the screenplay. So I started, they gave me a little money. I went and bought like a new turntable cassette player so that I could listen to 60s music that would you – because know, the story they bought was called 1969 and it was about Woodstock and the moon landing and stuff. Sure. So I started it and then they changed their mind. And they thought, no, we want a real screenwriter. To, and then for 10 years they optioned that story and I just kept watching. Who's they? Oh, it was like a small production, a small production company. Yeah. Um, who I don't know if they ever did a project. But it's a fickle world, film and television. Yeah. Always those ups and downs. But what, what I watched that was so interesting and horrifying was that I watched the, um, over 10 years, all the cliches got reestablished. Like, I didn't have a father in the story. They gave me an Archie Bunker, alcoholic, homophobic, working class father <laughs> because working class people are supposed to be like that. Right. And uh, the, the girl who sort of had lesbian tendencies but was straight, they made her be a femme rather than tomboyish because that would that was somehow more pleasing to, you know, it was just like each each thing that was like not offensive or not a particular way, they made the more obvious way. And I think that was the And I think that's the thing that's actually really interesting about this moment is we're stepping away. I mean, like to talk about transparent, it's not it's not in the realm of the cliches. It's very surprising. Yeah. And so many shows that people are doing now. Well, thank, are to, thank God. Yeah. Because I mean, this is some idea that Americans are stupid and we have to play at large 
all like you know like I, I one of the things I find myself saying a lot lately is that we are a comic nation. You know, like we have no tragedy. Which every every show used to end with ha ha ha. Right. The great. You know, it's sort of like we're fools. We know. Yeah. And we're not fools. You know. In fact, we probably are the greatest tragedy on the planet right now. Americans. Yeah. So much potential. So much potential. Exactly. So but I want to I want to ask. This brings up an interesting question. When you talk about um, a writing your own screenplay, which I'm going to vote for you to do. Okay. I think people. Why not write your own story? Mm-hmm. And then, but at the same time, um, and this is, I'll tell you like briefly, like this is, this is my life right now. Somebody the other day recommended that I should watch the end of the tour, that David Foster Wallace on book tour movie. Have you heard oh, of that? No. I just, I had a, fr- a person on Twitter. Oh, is it, my, is it the, just the David Foster Wallace movie that yeah, you hear yeah, about? Yeah. With David Lipsky and like yeah. the Rolling Stone reporter and they're on the right. road together on book tour. Right, right, And right. that's the movie. Yeah. And one of my friends on Twitter is like, you have to see this. I want to hear your thoughts. Right. And I've been wanting to see it. Right. Which, like, as a parent of young children, you're constantly wanting to see movies that you can't see. Yeah. But it happens to be available uh, online. So I, I bought it. I downloaded it. And I've spent, like, the last three nights falling asleep to it. So I've watched it in, like, these <laughs> tiny chunks. Right. But I remember reading about it. And I remember reading that David Foster Wallace's family, I think, like, totally disavowed it. Or I don't know how hostile it was. But you often hear the Steve Jobs, the Steve Jobs movie. Right. His family and uh. coworkers are very hurt by this. Right. And I, I, I kind of find myself thinking, you know, when you're a public person, and you put your work out there for the for public consumption, and you inspire a lot of people right. and you frustrate a lot of people or whatever it is, um, it's sort of fair game that people could make art and bend your life and make art out of it. And then I, I guess I'm, I'm uncertain on whether or not I'm correct in that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how much do we owe people in terms of getting it right, in terms of making your father true to life as opposed to making him Archie Bunker? Right, right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, yeah. it's a, it brings up interesting questions because it might work better for a television audience yeah. if he's Archie Bunker. Well, see, I, I totally disagree. You, yeah, I feel like I'm, we've, I'm, already, we've already had Archie Bunker. Right. Let's move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? But I mean, I don't think anybody owes anybody anything. I think it's sort of like, I mean, I may have more uh, a different feeling about this if, the more I became a public figure. You know, it's sort of like funny. Like I think – so like Transparent has this Eileen-ish character and then Grandma. There's a Lily Tomlin film and there's right. also – you know, it's, it's, it's not an Eileen – there's been a story that there's an Eileen character. But it just – it isn't. It's just like my work is in there and stuff. So I feel like I'm starting to be like copied. Like I'm like a thing. And it's, of course, as we know, we're already – we influence each other all the time. We're already out there in the world already all our lives and I just feel like it's sort of like once you step out of your house or once you I mean once you put a pen to paper you're lying so there's no reason for you to be held to like the truth because I think how would I know what the truth was I only know what's moving around in my brain and trying to get some approximate Um, but I also think it's sort of like once you're out there as somewhat of a public figure it's like it's your fair game yeah people will say shit that's right you know and it's like it's like David Foster Wallace in his life I'm sure enjoyed many uh, biopics or television shows right. that did exactly that thing that has been now done to him because he's you know had this uh, enormous legacy. So it's just I have an ex who's publishing a book of stories in the spring, I believe, and I think that I'm in several stories, and it's so funny because I've been writing about my exes forever, yeah. and now it's not the first time it's been done to me, but it's really in a certain way it's 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 kind of the first time. Do you real- read? Huh? You're going to read it? 
I think I've read those stories already. And oh, one, okay. one, one, you know, she wrote them both when we were together, but they always have a different feel once you're not together. And it's like <laughs> what you were forgiving, you're suddenly now like, yeah, you know, yeah. and stuff. But I mean, I just, it just, it just kind of comes with the territory and it's not me. I mean, that's the thing. I'm the original. It's just like that, that fact doesn't change, you know, and, um, does it bother you? No. I mean, it's funny what bothers me and what bothers other people. Like I got reviewed in the New York Times and, and Dwight Garner spent like half the review talking the, about my the, face yes. and talking about the photographs. And people are so mad about that. I could care less. You don't you think know? that's like a gendered thing? Because like I saw well, some of that. On- it is a gendered. It totally is a gendered thing. So there it is. You know right. what I mean? Like every, the thing that's great is that everybody knows that and everybody notices that, you know, because I think even in a certain way, people don't even, I mean, I'm pretty androgynous. People don't even think of me as the most female-ish female, you know, but still in the publisher too, it's sort of like. It's a reason, badass photo. I mean. Yeah, both of them are. Yeah. But it's sort of like the publisher did it because I'm female. I mean, it's sort of like if you looked at Echo, it's like Jory Graham for a long time. I mean, she finally has a book that. There's no picture of Jory Graham on it, you know, and that's after years of publishing with Echo, you know, because it's like, and this, it's so stupid. There's this idea that like, if a woman writes a book, there should be a woman on the cover because the audience is women, and we're really stupid, and we only pick up <laughs> books that have pictures of ourselves on the cover. Or so like, there's like, lots of cupcakes and strollers. I mean, depending on the type of book. Yeah, a lot you know? of braids. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like that is so weird. But you know, the Garner interview was a positive, was a largely positive interview. And exactly. A review. I'm sorry, but if it yeah. if it had been a negative review would you be less forgiving about the you know 400 well, words about the picture <laughs> in his way it wasn't ne- i mean that was the part that bothered me more he was just like perhaps her her best work is you know like somehow half the book i sort of crap out halfway through the book he says but the thing is i know i know that's not true it's just like my work it gets different it's sort of like if you love an art form you love to watch it change and i don't think he's really a lover of poetry so he just said something easy you know, yeah. he probably didn't spend a whole lot of time with the book, hmm. you know, so. Well, okay, so Los Angeles, I think we were talking before we came on. It was San Francisco yesterday, Los Angeles, and then to Houston. Then Houston, then Boston, then Western Mass, then. Um, you know a lot of people back in Boston still? Not really, but I happen to be, it's very funny, I happen to be in Boston. I got reviewed in the Boston Globe, which was my great publicity triumph. Hey, yeah. they don't really review books much they never review people from boston very rarely unless it's like i can't even think of these guys names who dennis lehane or, yes exactly yeah, yeah. exactly um and it brought out the troops for years i've been hearing people say like um ugh, facebook all my friends from high school my friends from high school never came near me on facebook when the boston globe wrote about me and also i had a poem in the new yorker last summer they all it was just like really you the, the, the new yorker <laughs> You know, people can uh, talk badly yeah. about it or whatever, but in the literary world, it holds a rare power. Even the non-literary people that just want to be intelligent, they get the New Yorker. Yeah. You know, it's like it's kind of amazing. So it's just so when I go to Boston, I'm gonna. I was there. I did something recently, and I, you know, and they put me up at a hotel. But this time, I'm I'm gonna stay with friends that I grew up with in Lexington, and and it just happens that another friend that I haven't seen in years is in town. So it'll be a huge reunion with old friends and they may come to my reading and who knows what they'll think about it you know that's cool yeah well i'll tell you i can't uh i can't tell you how much i appreciate you being here uh it's been such a pleasure talking with you and an honor and i congratulate you on your success and wish you well and whatever comes next thank you so much it's been fun all right guys that is eileen miles go get her books she has two books out from echo right now the poetry collection is called i must be living twice 
The novel is called Chelsea Girls, the reissue. Uh, both available from Echo right now. You can find Eileen online at EileenMiles.com. She's on Twitter, her handle over there, at Eileen Miles. And uh, she's also on Facebook. She has an Instagram. Uh, she's online. Track her down. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. The Other People app, free. Go get it. Get it on your device. Find it wherever apps are available. Once you do that, the most recent 50 episodes of the program will be there waiting for you free of charge. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. And then if you want to get at all of the episodes all 400 or almost 400 episodes, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It's 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. Do you understand how that works? You get the most recent 50 for free. The most recent 50, always free. And then if you want access to every episode available whenever you want, wherever you go, you just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the Other People app. The app itself is free. Great way to support the show. If you'd like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think of the show. Tell me a story. What have you. You can commiserate with me if your computer died recently. Share in our grief. It was, uh, you know, for those of you who follow me on my uh, other, you know, at other PPL Twitter feed, I uh, documented at length my Apple customer service experience in the aftermath of my computer dying. I had to go to the Mac store. I had to buy a new computer. I needed help transferring old information to new computer it was an extremely drawn out let me put it to you this way i had a six hour customer service call with apple care that was just one such call i had multiple calls the longest of which was six hours long i had a customer service rep uh, on apple care who was into the illuminati seemed a little bit paranoid was into conspiracy theories possibly very nice fella but uh, the longer we got on the call, and in his defense, we were on the phone for six hours. That could break any man. I documented it all. Read my Twitter, at OtherPPL. Please remember that Montaigne didn't know how to swim and that Glenn Gould died of a stroke. That's it for now. I want to say thanks again to Eileen Miles for making time to come over here and talk with me. I uh, really appreciate that. Thanks to you guys for making time to listen, as always. I really appreciate that. Thanks for spreading the word about the show, talking it up on social media. Thanks for all the good wishes uh, this past week uh, regarding the New York Times piece. Got a lot of good uh, good little notes and tweets from people, so thank you for that. And uh, I'll be back next week with another conversation with another writer. I have a new computer. It's very fast. I didn't realize I was living a lie. I was dealing with a very slow computer. You get a new computer after you've you know your, your computer turns almost five years old, you realize... Uh, how much better the new machines are. But I will say this. You make a significant purchase, like uh, a new computer, at a Mac store in a mall, and then you leave that at a Mac store with your new computer in your hands, you shouldn't have to look at a cheesecake factory right away. Can we just can we make that a rule in all of uh, American retail? Cheesecake factories should be isolated from the rest of the uh, stores. I don't ever want to look at a cheesecake factory after spending almost two thousand dollars. It's like the final insult. It's like fuck you, man. Here's some cheesecake. <laughs>